If you would, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. As we continue our study of the Gospel. Romans chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. So I am eager to preach the Gospel among you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Word of the Lord. So if you'll notice just a few things about this text, Paul often does this, that he ties his statements together with the statement for, and you can almost interpose that every time in your Bible that you see it with the word because. So he says, so I am eager to preach the gospel among you also who are in Rome for or because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul, are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. How is it, Paul, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes? For or because in it, namely in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Might I just say that if you were writing this letter, that's probably not what you would say right there. That's probably not what I would be naturally prone to say at that point. We're waiting for something else. We would expect Paul to say, because in it, God forgives sins. Because in it, Jesus dies and reconciles us to God. And all those are true. But why is it that Paul highlights, and this is, this is, it's arguable, is the theme of Romans. Why is it that he says, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed? And that is precisely why he says that it has saving power to everyone who believes. Before we get into answer that question, how is it that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God? We have to first answer the question, what exactly is the righteousness of God? What are we even talking about? You might think that's an odd question. What are we saying when we say God is righteous? It's a massive question and really all of scripture answers that question. Really, all of Romans, you could, you could read Romans and reread Romans and get a better sense of what the righteousness of God is. And hopefully this sermon will help us see that in seven ways, limiting myself to seven, there are more, we'll see that in a bit, limiting myself to seven ways that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. But what is it? We need to do a little bit of work to answer this question because if we say God is righteous and all we mean by that is saying God is good or that God does good things, then are we saying there is a moral standard outside of God? When we say that I am righteous or that someone does something that is righteous, we mean precisely that their behavior, their life accords with some standard, namely God's. So what does it mean to say God is righteous? 
There's no standard outside of him. There's no standard higher than him. So are we saying anything in addition to just saying God is God by saying God is righteous? It's an important question. In the Bible, you can go to a couple of different places. You don't necessarily have to turn there, but uh, you can see this in the prophets. place that you can see this is Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, uh, beginning in verse 20, you see God speaking about his work of salvation, but also the reason why he does it. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to where they came. And if you go down to uh, verse 31, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that they were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. It's for the sake of his name, his namesake that he acts. And you can also see this in Psalm 143. This is just a sampling. This is answering a prerequisite question before we get to Romans. So I'm not going to show you all the biblical evidence to answer the question this way. Psalm 143, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. So Hebrew poetry especially is more about parallels than it is about rhyming. Okay? So there's there's rhythm in Hebrew poetry and often they'll line up two ideas in one line and then in the second line to give you a sense of the theological meaning. And so the psalmist here lines up God's namesake, the sake of his name with his righteousness. That's really fascinating. And we're going to develop this a little bit further. This is how uh, one of my favorite theologians puts it. And this is his big definition for the righteousness of God, or just speaking about it. The moral rectitude of the disposition, inclination, or affection of God. That's how they used to talk. So the righteousness of God chiefly consists in a regard to himself. chiefly consists in a regard to himself, infinitely above his regard to all other things. In other words, his holiness consists in this. So from these texts, many theologians, I would offer this short definition for God's righteousness. God's righteousness consists primarily in his ultimate regard for the glory of his holiness. God's righteousness consists primarily in his ultimate regard for the glory of his holiness. Now, we've answered a question of definition with two other words that kind of need a definition. And I would define holiness in this way. 
Holiness is God's infinite worth because of his total otherness. Okay? We, we run out of words kind of when we're talking about these concepts. God's holiness is his infinite worth because he is totally other. There is no one like him. This is how Paul himself reflects on this glorious truth in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. God rebukes the people of Israel and says, you thought that I was like you. Your mistake is that you thought I was like you. Indifferent. What the cherubim and the seraphim cry over and over and over is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's different. He's other than you think. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. He's so uniquely different. Everything else that exists is creation. He is creator. All of us are subjective beings, meaning we depend on something else in order to exist. God does not depend on anything else to exist, and He has always been And he hasn't developed over time. He's always been as he is now for all time throughout eternity going both directions. He's different. And he's the only one. There's only one holy one. And it stuns the imagination that there is such a being as this. And on the other side of it, it is only logical that such a being should exist. The world doesn't make sense unless there is such a one. And we say that He is our God. He is the Lord. He is the I Am. I will be who I will be, He says. So that's His holiness. That He is infinitely He has infinite worth. He is infinitely valuable because He is infinitely unique. There's no one like him. There's no one that even closely approximates him. And Job, even when we think we have a grasp on the Almighty, he says, behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Just as an aside, this is what I'm trying to do every Sunday. And this is what you should want to happen every Sunday. Why do we get together? Why do we get up early on daylight savings time and make sure that we can get here all on time? Is it, is it because this is some kind of obligation or we got to check a box? Is that primarily why we're here? Is, there, is it even because God needs us to gather and to hear our worship? No, primarily You should come here. We should work and make this happen all together because we want to see this one. We want to behold our God. We need to see Him as He is to understand His holiness and to try to progress in our understanding and appreciation of Him. That's His holiness. And His glory is precisely defined as the shining forth 
of His infinite worth. The shining forth of the infinite worth of God. So God is holy, and in a sense, He could remain holy in all of His perfections and all of His glory, and no one would know about it. If He hadn't created anyone, He hadn't created the angels, hadn't created us to behold it, There's no shining forth of that because it's only Him and He's enjoying His glory in the triunity of His existence between Father, Son, and Spirit, but it's not shining forth in an appropriate way, the way it should. All things that have breath should praise the Lord precisely because He has infinite worth, because there's no one like Him. So, God is righteous... And we are saying something meaningful when we say that. We're saying something more than just saying God is God. We're saying God is righteous because He rightly, properly, infinitely, and above all things has regard for His holiness to shine forth. Because since He is the best and most beautiful thing, the best and most beautiful being, it is right for not just God to behave this way, but for everything that has breath to behave this way. Do you see? Do you understand that for God to be righteous, it's almost the same definition of what it means for us to be righteous. Because to be right in a universe where there is such a being as God who is that holy means that any being, including God Himself, must give ultimate total regard and reverence and joy towards that being. So God is righteous because He does that perfectly. Always. He acts for the sake of His name. His righteousness is married to the sake of His name. This can be watershed for you. This can be a threshold belief for you. This changes everything about your life. I'm not just being dramatic. If you don't see that, that God's righteousness consists primarily in His ultimate infinite regard for Himself and the shining forth of His glory, that that is the righteousness of God. If you don't see that, if that makes you mad, I'll cancel all my plans this week if you're willing, and I'll work with you to show you that from Scripture. It's that important. My life has never been the same since I saw this for the first time. Any blessing that you've received from me as your pastor, any energy you see at work in me, any grace that God has been pouring into me through me for your sake is rooted deep, deep down in this truth that the righteousness of God consists in His regard for His holiness and glory. It's even the foundation for why God has saved us. The Gospel itself is rooted in this. And yet the Gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel cuts through the clutter of sin and darkness and shows us God's righteousness. And what does it mean 
to be revealed. And why is it that the righteousness of God needs to be revealed? So it's one thing to say that God is righteous, and we've talked about what God's righteousness is, and hopefully you can set that in the category of things to meditate on this week. But why does it need to be revealed? Why why does His righteousness need to be shown? Sin... And its effect on our mind is such that we are blinded outside of Christ to the glory of the righteousness of God. The curse lies heavy on the world. Even though the curse is God's just and righteous response to sin, even to lead us to repentance, part of that curse is that we are cut off from seeing and sensing the glory of His righteousness. On the one hand, we want God's righteousness for others. Anyone? We see injustice and tyranny in the world. We see the oppressed suffer under the hand of the wicked. And we want God's righteousness. We want His justice. We want it to flow like rivers over the darkness of this world. But then we look inside our own hearts and we don't want God's righteousness. We don't want it there. It would expose too much. It would hurt too much. And if His righteousness were to come in full, it would mean nothing less than the end of the world. We're going to see that at the end here. Also, it's not just that when we look, the world we see does not give us a sense of the glory of the righteousness of God without the gospel. Primarily because the world we see, it's not just that sometimes bad things happen to people who are somewhat good. It's that good things happen to people who are obviously evil. And they prosper because of their wickedness. It's not just... The world's chaotic. It seems capricious that evil things happen to good people, people we perceive as good, and then the wicked prosper. This is essentially what Psalm 73 is, is complaining about. And you should, that should be in, like, it's your, the top list, top five of the chapters that you go back to over and over, Psalm 73. The psalmist cries out to God, why does it look this way? In vain have I kept my hands clean all the day long. It doesn't make sense. The world does not portray to us the righteousness of God. This is why it needs to be revealed in something like the gospel. And one day it will happen. God will vindicate the righteous. I'm not trying to manufacture emotion right now. I don't know how you could wake up in the morning unless you had a belief that God will one day vindicate the righteous. If you're paying attention at all beyond the bubble of our security in the lives that we persist in, it needs addressing. The Lord must avenge. The Lord must bring justice. It must happen. The blood of the martyrs even cries out from under the altar in heaven. How long will you let this go on? So while we wait for that day, 
for the full and final revelation of the righteousness of God. We have it already in the Gospel. There's an already, not yet. We see it in the Gospel by faith and we wait for it to come in full. And this is really good news that the righteousness of God is revealed in the Gospel because if you understood and understood the personal implications of our definition of God's righteousness that we began with, then you realize we're in big trouble because I don't regard God's worth and holiness the way I ought to, the way God does. I'm unrighteous. We all are. So it's good news that the gospel is what God has chosen to use to reveal his righteousness. And all of this, all the blessings of salvation are in Christ received through faith. And we'll get to that next week. We're going to spend the majority of our time on the phrase from faith for faith. It's all through faith. So before we get into these seven different ways that God reveals his righteousness through the gospel, uh, just three clarifications. One, there are more than seven. I cut myself off at seven because that's a nice biblical number. But there are more than seven ways that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. You could probably get close to around 40, depending on how you counted them, with not a whole lot of overlap. Second clarification, God is the only one who does this. Okay, God is the one who is revealing His righteousness in the gospel. He is the great actor the subject, the originator of this plan. And third clarification, I won't spend a lot of time delving into this, but in each of these seven ways that God reveals His righteousness, it's Trinitarian. The Father is at work, the Son is at work, and the Spirit is at work in all seven of these and in any other way that the Gospel reveals God's righteousness. So we won't mention exactly how that works in each one, but just know God in Trinity, is active in all these. Okay. We've looked at what is the righteousness of God? Why does it need to be revealed? Now let's see how the Gospel reveals the righteousness of God. First, God in the Gospel gives His righteousness. He gives it. card shark I am not this is the diamond at the heart of it all this is the best I'm giving it to you up front because if I lose you as we go on I don't want you to miss this this is the best way for you and me that God reveals his righteousness in the gospel primarily in that he gives his righteousness to sinners through faith in Jesus God justifies that's the same word as Righteous or being made righteous. He gives you right standing. Through faith in Jesus, God justifies sinners, giving them His own righteousness in Christ. So in selecting these seven different ways, I tried to limit myself to ones that were obviously in Romans. I don't want to just uh, do systematic theology. I want to treat... uh, the verse 
properly in its context. So if you turn to Romans 3. Romans 3, verses 21 through 25, the first part. But now, (laughs) and if you know what Paul has said up to this point, you would have a sense of the emotional relief of that statement. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested or shown apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So full stop. You need to receive the righteousness of Christ through faith. If Christianity for you has been a set of behaviors, maybe attending church, not being overly disorderly on the weekdays, right? If it means calling yourself a Baptist for you, which is great if it means giving a certain amount of your funds, if that for you is Christianity and you have not received the righteousness of God through faith, full stop. You must. That is the only way you can stand justified before God. Through faith, through trusting in Christ alone for righteousness, you receive God's righteousness. He doesn't call you righteous. He makes you righteous in His sight, crediting to you His very own righteousness. That's the heart of the Gospel. It doesn't work without that. And sadly, this is under siege. Even in some of our seminaries. Without this, the church falls apart. There there is no Gospel. Through the cross... The wrath-atoning sacrifice in the body of Christ, God has justified, made righteous, given you right standing to be received by faith in Jesus. Imagine yourself one day, and maybe even in your imagination, it's not so far from the truth of what will transpire. One day before the throne of God, the very judgment seat of Christ. And Satan is the accuser. And just imagine, even from today's data, you don't have to go much further than today, all that the enemy could bring against you justly as a charge, as an accusation of why God should not have grace towards you, why He should not let you into paradise. But in Christ... The pronouncement from the judgment seat of Christ is not just, well, I've pardoned him. Though that would be amazing and stunning. It's not just that he has forgiven your sins. It's not just that the judgment seat in heaven does not find you guilty. It's that God in Christ finds you righteous. Do you sense the emotional impact of that? That it is not based on your life 
And it's not that he's just removed the the dark and dirty guilt of sin, that he has given you the righteousness of Christ. And that is the right and just verdict from heaven over your life. Righteous. This matters so much. I mean, I could we could just spend all our time here. But I want you to just remember all the passages in Scripture about how God treats the wicked versus how He treats the righteous. God doesn't change. In Him there is no shadow of turning or variation. And Romans 3 says, No one is righteous. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor the sinner in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's either true or it's not. And if it's true, then we're in big trouble. Because you and I need righteousness in order to stand with God. We don't just need to be forgiven, though we need that too. We need righteousness. That right standing with God is given to you through faith in Christ. That is the gospel. That's the heart of it. That's what makes it work. It's the engine of it all. In the most fundamental sense, brothers and sisters, you can't gain righteousness. Even if you kept the law perfectly. This is the point of Romans 2 and 3, the first part. Even if you kept the law perfectly, the pronouncement from heaven would not be righteous. The righteousness of God has now been manifested apart from the law. Through faith to all who believe. If that message doesn't give you boldness and confidence, I don't know what can. Second, God in the gospel vindicates his own righteousness. We can just keep reading in the section in chapter 3. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He passed over former sins. Do you understand the significance of that? We talked about God's holiness and his righteousness. And his right regard for his holiness and the shining forth of that. For that being to pass over former sins. It's an outrage. And the heavenly beings, in a sense, are waiting. The the, the sense is, are you going to do anything about this? In Acts 17, Paul says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. How can he do that? If he's holy and just, he can't just sweep sin under the rug. He can't just pretend like it doesn't happen. He would not be righteous to do that. Don't you see that in the gospel, this this passage we've just read, this was to show God's righteousness. 
The gospel comes partly to show that God deals with sin. God is holy. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, God shows his righteousness in dealing with sin permanently, even former sins. God vindicates his righteousness by revealing Christ as the propitiation, the true and better lamb of God. You get that sense? Do you, you understand that when Jesus arrives at the Jordan where John is baptizing, that John is the first one to make that connection, at least chronologically? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what had to happen to show that God is in fact righteous. Because He can't just forgive and let sinners off the hook. He has to deal with it in One who would die. So the gospel does that. It proves to the watching world from the demons to the unfallen angels to us to everyone who beholds it that God is in fact righteous. He doesn't speak out of both sides of His mouth. He's not a wishy-washy God. He is always righteous. So in the cross, and I want you to sense the importance of this, going back to what we were talking about with the world we see and the injustice and the oppression, the gospel answers that. In Christ, receiving the brunt of the wrath of God in our place for our sins, God proves that He will fully and finally deal with sin, either on the cross or in hell. God is not unjust, and He will not clear the guilty, but He will justify the one who has faith in Jesus. So all that we experience now, even with the trials and tribulations that are out there and that we experience is God's patience. Do not count the slowness of God's promise as some count slowness, but God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So while God is holding off the full revelation of His righteousness, repent and believe in the only one from whom you can be saved in the only one that you you can be saved in. And this is exactly how Jesus answers the disciples. They come, hey, did you hear about the tower that fell over and killed those unsuspecting people? Do you think that they were any more sinful than you? But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. God deals with sin. And the obscenity of the cross proves that beyond a shadow of a doubt, God is serious. He is holy. And He has never not been holy. Number three, God in the Gospel marries His righteousness with our salvation. I want you to understand this. You've got to see this. Notice grammatically how the answer of the question, 
How is the gospel the power of God for salvation? It's precisely because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. So it has saving power precisely because it reveals God's righteousness. And if you pay attention to the Old Testament, you see that God's righteousness is revealed in his saving work. At least 20 times, depending on how you count, the Old Testament mirrors God's salvation and his righteousness. Here's uh, an example from Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for them. The Lord has made known his salvation and revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He's made known his salvation and he's revealed his righteousness. They're not talking about two different movements. It's the same thing. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Ten times in Isaiah, you have this mirroring of salvation and righteousness. Here's an example from Isaiah 46. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. And the last one in chapter 61. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. For us, and for the Old Testament saints, God's righteousness is married to His saving work towards those who trust in Him. They're a pair or a mirror of the same idea. God through the gospel, accomplishes this by vindicating his own power and might and glory by saving those who wait on him. Saving those who trust in his servant, Jesus. God is demonstrating his total and ultimate regard for his own holiness and his namesake in that he would bring salvation to all who entrust themselves fully to him. Do you see? Do you understand that? This, this, this is, again, so precious to the heart of the believer that God has essentially put His namesake at risk in being able to save those who trust in Him. Do you get that? This is why faith matters. This is what we'll be talking about the majority of next week, that faith is essentially trusting that God is able to save you. And because God has such regard for his own namesake, he will not let one person perish who trusts in his son, Jesus. It would defame his name to let one slip out of his fingers. He will not lose one of those that the father has given him. So don't pollute his glorious work of salvation with your own works. It's not based on what you do. You can't earn this righteousness. 
It's His righteousness in saving you. You don't bring stuff to the table except your need for salvation. Number four, God, through the gospel, makes His church hunger and thirst for righteousness. The blessings of righteousness and the indwelling of the Spirit result in new holy desires for righteousness in the hearts of the redeemed. You can see this in Romans 6. Romans 6, beginning in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitation, limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he says, from the heart that you in Christ have been set free from sin and have become obedient, not not because you've been forced into submission or forced to conformity to obey a set of rules and regulations, but from the heart. You've been set free from the tyranny of sin and been given a new set of desires in Christ. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. He's not just talking about the legal or forensic imputed righteousness of Christ. He's saying that you actually want to see righteousness everywhere. That you want to see receive righteousness from God. You want to be righteous. You want to see the righteousness of God cover the earth as the water covers the sea. You want it in all of its forms. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst this way because you will be filled When was the last time you were deeply moved by that promise? You will be filled. Christianity is a message of slavery. We've been released from the bad kind of slavery to sin. And we've come to the only good kind of slavery. Slaves to God and righteousness. But it's from the heart. It's not that we've been, in a sense, shackled, obeying in a way where we don't really want it and we don't really enjoy it, but it's from the heart. We, we willingly shackle ourselves. As the hymn says, Here's my heart, Lord, take and keep it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let thy goodness like a fetter, like a ball and chain, bind my wandering heart to thee. 
This is why I get so frustrated when people speak as if God doesn't care how you live. And however you are is just okay. Just be who you are. You've been bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies, Paul says. The free gift is given. The free gift of righteousness is given. And so this free gift of the righteousness of God and the Spirit transform us to have this new set of desires. This is how Paul says it in Romans 8.10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The gospel through pure grace and the gift of God's eternal life in Jesus gives us new, eternal, and godly desires for righteousness from the heart. This has a lot of implications for testing yourself to see if whether or not you, you're in the faith. Is righteousness and holy for you always a chore and boring? Or is it from the heart? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? even in the midst of our struggling and completely imperfect attempts to do so. Have you received those new desires from the Lord? Number five, God, through the gospel, empowers us to actually live righteous lives. He says in verses 17 and 18, back in chapter 6, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient. It's not just a theoretical fascination with righteousness. It's it's real. It actually results in behavior. You can see this in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Holy, acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. That's, that's priesthood language there. That is it acceptable in, in the very temple of heaven as you minister alongside your older brother and high priest Jesus himself. Even now it begins. And you can see this also in Romans 1, verse 5. That the whole point of it all, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. It actually results in real life change. It's not merely theoretical. Like, I I would love to go to Middle Earth if I had a chance, right? If that was a real place and I could get on a plane and go there, like maybe one day I'll get to go to New Zealand, but if, if, if Middle Earth were real, I would pay whatever price it took to get there. So I have that desire and fascination with Middle Earth and all things Lord of the Rings, but it's not real. This is a merely theoretical fascination and love of an imaginary place. Righteousness can't be like that for you. It has to be tangible, lived out in your life. There's really nothing innovative here in what I'm saying. Obviously, we understand that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. 
But the point is that the gospel is precisely what enables you to do this. It's all of grace that through the gospel, he gives you new desires. He gives you his spirit so that you can live a holy life. Acceptable and pleasing to him. Number six, through the gospel, God, through the gospel, promises the full revelation of righteousness. The gospel is not done. Not by a long shot. The gospel is not done bringing change. Soon, brothers and sisters, soon all the world will be the kingdom of God's righteousness. And there will be no end. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This day will go badly for many, but righteousness will reign on the earth in Christ. He will establish his kingdom forever. Have you ever thought about in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Like what, what is the difference? They're, they're essentially two sides of the same reality. What is God's kingdom unless it is the kingdom of righteousness? And what is righteousness unless it actually comes and changes the world? It can't be theoretical and in heaven somewhere. The kingdom is precisely that it is the place where his righteousness rules. And it's going to happen one day. Praise the Lord. Habakkuk 2.14 For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The gospel makes this possible because without reconciliation to God, without forgiveness of sins and being declared righteous in the person of Jesus, you and I would not be there to see it or enjoy it. It would go badly for us too. The only way you can be a member of that kingdom of righteousness is is if you receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus and the gospel. Number seven. God in the gospel reveals Jesus Christ, the righteous. The most complete, never ending and beautiful display of God's righteousness is the person of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand how significant this is. God is in heaven. No one has ever seen God. His form you have not beheld. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is a spirit and has not a body like man. But the only God who is at His right hand has made Him known. God's righteousness is, is too big for us. It's too magnificent. It, 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 it boggles the mind. We are, we are finite, limited people with a, an attention span. Amen? And, and, and a, a, a RAM, you know, if you're into computers at all, we have a limited amount that we can put in our minds at any given time, and God's righteousness exceeds all those boundaries. And yet, Christ has come. In the person of Jesus Christ, in his dealings with us, in his behavior, in in just his very own 
person. We have the full and complete revelation of the righteousness of God. And that is why Jesus must be the king. Because he is the righteous one. This is what Jesus says to John the Baptist. Let it be so now. For thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I hope you can sense how much God has done to reveal His righteousness in the Gospel. And you see that this is precisely how it has saving power. There's so much more to be said. But I'll leave you with this. Romans 5 again. Verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin... For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many." And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Gospel that it reveals Your righteousness. Give us strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. In Jesus' name, Amen.